We're using Jeremiah 29 as our anchor text uh, to set the mood, to set the tone for the study. It's where God reminds, through Jeremiah, God reminds the Israelites uh, to make your living among the pagans. Uh, don't hold back, he says. Don't, don't try to undermine uh, the authority of the Babylonians. Get along with them. Increase in your number. Don't, don't just try to hold back everything, but you try to influence this pagan culture. Remember that your prosperity is tied to the city's prosperity, he tells them. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray for the city. God has put you here for a reason, and that reason is to better you. And so Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we're much the same way today, that we're living as sojourners in exile on this earth, and that, that we're to live lives that, that are so beautiful, so joyous, so different, that when the pagans say, oh, look at that Christian, and they start to put us down, other people will say, no, but you don't understand, they, they live beautiful lives. They're wonderful people. You, you can't say that about them. And he goes on and reminds us that, that we're to honor everyone. We're even to honor, he says, the emperor. Can I tell you that had to be hard for Peter to say to honor the emperor, to fear God, to love the brotherhood. But then Paul turns around in Ephesians and tells us we're no longer strangers. We're no longer aliens. Well, wait a second. Peter just said we are, we are sojourners and we are to live as aliens. And Paul turns around and says, no, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Except Paul's talking about God's kingdom. God's reality. And in that reality, we're still building up one another we're still growing as a church and growing the kingdom of God. And that is causing us to dwell in God and with God. So in one way, we're sojourners and we're aliens when it comes to living in this earthly kingdom. But we have a place and we are citizens in this godly kingdom that we're studying. We're asking ourselves, how do we as believers live with integrity and have influence in a culture that doesn't share our same values? And so with that, we're going to the book of Daniel because the book of Daniel has some ex excellent examples. So turn your Bibles over to Daniel and I'll do a quick review as, before we start our new study this morning. Remember, They've been conquered, they're, new, they're exiles, and they're living as aliens in this kingdom called Babylon. Everything that they had sacred and dear has been defiled. They've been emasculated. Their, their strength has been taken away from them, and their identities have been changed. They used to be called by Hebrew names. Now they're called by the, the Babylonian gods' names. And the, 
the culture is doing its best to try to assimilate that Israel nation into Babylonian culture. Sound like what maybe is pressing in on you day to day? Sound like maybe you live in that environment? Chapter 1, we learned we must respectfully stand out. If we're going to change our community, if we're going to make our community prosper, we've got to stand out. We've got to resolve not to defile ourselves. We're going to get along, but we're not going to defile ourselves We're going to have to be people who speak with wisdom and tact, even in the tough times. We're going to have to get together, and it's going to have to be a team effort where we pray for one another and where we come together to solve problems and to come up with solutions like David did. We talked about staying loyal even when our faith was under fire. And the first thing we determined is we've got to be people who trust God enough to meet God in the furnace. Because when the times get tough is when we're probably going to grow the closest to God. Matter of fact, Paul tells Timothy, if you really want to live a godly life, then you're going to be persecuted. When I'm being persecuted for believing in Christ, Mary, I can smile because I know I'm doing something right. When tough times are tough because I'm living out the Christian life, David, I know that I'm doing something right. And we studied that liberation sometimes comes in the fire. Sometimes we're going to have to go through tough times to burn off our habits, our hurts, and sometimes our bad behavior. Sometimes when life is at its worst is when we cling to Christ and we let go of those things that bind us. We went on to chapter 4 to learn that sanity is really knowing there is a God and you're ultimately accountable to him and live life accordingly insanity is thinking that i'm self-made and i'm self-sufficient we also discovered god's god's willing to to cut us down sometimes to ground us in humility and don't fear that because we know we're loved by god when he disciplines us You know the old saying, there's two kids on the street. One says, my mama loves me. She lets me do anything. And I could cross the street anytime I want. And the other boy looks at him and says, my mama loves me. And I'm not ever to go near the street. Because she can't think of living life without me if I got ran over. Sometimes love needs discipline. Amen? So here we are. Daniel chapter 5, how's your weight? Wait a second, don't get up. Those of you who are gravitationally challenged, this is not about mass or gravity. This is about a different kind of weight. Today's story is about a king who couldn't get the translation right. 
a king who had access to God's truth but couldn't see the writing on the wall. He, he got the translation, and then when he got the translation, it really wasn't at all what he wanted. Sometimes we get lost in translation, right? One of the cool things about this phone, I, I, our phone, well, it is a phone, but it's a watch. So one of the really cool things about this iWatch um, that I got because it helps me with some of my heart problems and hopefully it's going to help me get off some medicine if you're wondering why, I, why a 53-year-old guy gets a cool iWatch. But one of the cool things on this watch, Jack, is that it has a program that translates language. And I can translate anything. I can speak into the phone English and then it will translate and give me back Spanish or Chinese, or, or Mandarin, or, or whatever language I want. But if you do that, beware, sometimes some things are lost in translation, especially idioms, right? Well, let's have just a little bit of fun in some lost translations, okay? How about finger licking good? What did that used to be the slogan for? Kentucky Fried Chicken, you bet. It lost a little something in the translation. Eat your fingers off. I doubt that's what they meant to say. Or how about this one? Sorry, we're open. Now, I've been in a few restaurants, brother, that I was sorry they were open after I'd gone in, right? Now, you can't see it very well, but up here... It says members and non-members only. Who do you think they want to talk to? How about this one? Slip carefully. Minimize the lawsuit. How about this one? Absolutely nothing wrong with the translation. I just thought it was hilarious, so I'd leave it in there. All right. How about this one? You think taking your coupons in your purse and wallet are tough. Present your octopus. How about this one? Can you imagine how disappointed the person's going to be when they pull the pin on this one and expect the hand grenade to go off? Well, this morning, we're looking at a king who needed a translation service, but once he had the translation, he wasn't happy with it at all. Turn with me. Daniel chapter 5, we'll start with verse 1. Belshazzar, the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of thousands. A little bit of backstory before we get started here. King Nebuchadnezzar that we've been studying up to this point has died. Most likely there are a few decades that have gone by between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Belshazzar is, is most likely the great-great-grandson or at least the great-grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. When it says that it was his son, don't let that bother you. In ancient text and in the Bible itself, often people are said to be the son of whoever, and really that just means they're part of their lineage, okay? So 
son of David. Jesus is called son of David. Was he the son of literally David? No, it just means that he was in his lineage. History records uh, Belshazzar as a co-regent king of his father. And by now, Daniel's an older man. The Israelites were taken into captivity in 605 B.C. Historians place this story somewhere around 538 B.C. So that makes Daniel at least 67 years in. Factor in that he could have been about 13 years old when he entered into Nebuchadnezzar's uh, service. That now we have Daniel somewhere in his early 70s to early 80s. Okay, we don't know for sure, but Daniel is an older guy by now. He's no spring chicken anymore, as they say. Verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels, vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink for them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been used for the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. You know that's not going to end well, right? Then they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. So what Scripture doesn't tell you here, but some, some ancient historians do tell us and some ancient texts do tell us, that outside the walls, the Medes and the Persians are camped outside. They're just beyond the walls. Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian are, have control of the Babylonian army. And just a couple of years before, They've had a skirmish right outside of the capital city of Babylon. And they were so, the Babylonians were so overwhelmed that they ran back into the fortress of the capital city. This fortress was amazing, even by today's standards. The walls were 300 feet high. There were two of them. One was 25 foot thick. The other one was 75 foot thick. The second wall went 35 feet down into the ground. To give you an idea, this thing ran 14 miles square. That would be, David, like, like starting at Lake Fadeville and having a wall that went all the way, all the way down to the edge of um, West Fork. And then another wall that started at the edge of Farmington and went all the way to the edge of Lake Sequoia. That's how big the circumference of this thing is. It was 125,000 acres on the inside. And on the inside, they had the Euphrates River running through the middle of this capital city. And water flowed through aqueducts on one side of the city, man-made aqueducts on one side of the city, and then through the city, and then out another set of man-made aqueducts on the other side. 
this city is almost impenetrable. Well, it was impenetrable to any war machine of the day. Matter of fact, Jack, they estimated, historians estimated, that if they closed off the walls of this city, they could last 20 years inside. They had the ability to cultivate their own crops. Can you imagine being a king wanting to try to take that place over? You could, you could die before you got in there. So for two years, the Medes and Persian army has been camped outside the city gates. And things must have been getting a little tense. And Belshazzar then throws a party. A party to let everybody know everything's all right. And he invites thousands of people to this party. And he's trying to make a statement. And I believe the statement that he's trying to make is... There's nothing to worry about. Everything's okay. We're impenetrable. No one can take us over. Not these Persians and these Medes that are outside banging on the walls. And, and neither are those Israelites God. You know, the ones that thought they were so mighty that everybody feared. And I, that my father drug into captivity... We don't have to fear them, and we don't have to fear their God. Look, we can even use their sacred goblets and cups and drink wine from them. Verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack, and his knees began to knock together. A little apprehensive, you might say. No, he was scared to death. Verse 7. The king called aloud to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever, whoever can interpret this dream... I'll give a huge golden necklace to. I'll put a royal purple robe on you, and I'll let you rule as the third most powerful person in the kingdom. All the wise men came, but they couldn't pull this off. Verse 9 says, and he went another shade of pale. This guy looks like he's ready to be embalmed. Verse 10 the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke to the, and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. This guy must have been lily white by now and everybody can see that he's scared to death. Verse 11. There's a man in your kingdom who is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, wisdom, like the wisdom of, God, of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him as a chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. Verse 12, this was because an extraordinary spirit of knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving the difficult problems were found in Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare 
and interpretation. Do you see enough time has come, gone by that Daniel has been forgotten, but not King Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar's story. Daniel has been pushed back in prominence for some reason. And this new king doesn't, this new young co-regent king doesn't even recognize who he is or the things that he's done. So then Daniel was brought before the king. The king says, are you, I want you to notice this. When Daniel comes into the room, he doesn't say, are you Daniel? Are you Belteshazzar? He wants to prod him a little bit. He says, are you Daniel, who the one of the exiles from Judah, who my father, the king, brought into Judah? Let me put you in your place as you walk in here. You Jew. And then he says, I'll give you all this, but nobody can, nobody can interpret this message. But if you're, if you're able to interpret this message, then I'll clothe you in purple. I'll give you this great big gold necklace, and you can live as third in power in my kingdom. Meanwhile, outside the city gates, unbeknownst to the king, Darius and the Medes' army are digging hundreds of channels into the Euphrates River, and they're diverting the water away from the aqueducts. And they're diverting enough water from the aqueducts that now a man can get into the aqueduct and start traveling down the aqueduct into the inside of the city. All this is happening the same night that Daniel is there and getting ready to interpret the dream. Verse 17. When Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. And you might be asking, well, why doesn't Daniel want the gold necklace and the purple robe and the position? I don't know. Who wants to be the captain of the Titanic? He knows where it's going. He knows what's going to happen. Whatever this king gives him won't matter a bit because Daniel knows how it's going to end. Remember, Daniel is getting old. He's got to be 70 years plus, but he's still not afraid to speak truth, the truth of God, to those in power. I got to tell you, he's a finisher. He started the race, and he's going to finish the race. Verse 18. O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty and grandeur, glory and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. He started off speaking wisdom and tactfully to people with kindness, and he's still speaking with wisdom and kindness. Can I tell you, the older we get, sometimes... Uh, the fiber channel grows thicker between our brains and our mouths so it can just flow out faster and we don't think about what we say. Not with Daniel. No, he's still a person of wisdom and tact. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, the nations of men of every language feared and trembled before him. We're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. 
whomever he wished to kill and whomever he wished to spare alive and whomever he wished to elevate and whomever he wished to humble. But, verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirits became so proud that he became arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was taken and driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of a beast and his dwelling place was in the wild, with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized the Most High God as ruler over all the rims of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. But you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of the house before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand but the God in whose hand are your very life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him and the inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Meany, meany, tinkle, a parson. This is what the message said. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and put an end to it. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Prez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around him and his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he would had the authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom about the age of 62. What started as a party ended as a courtroom where God was both the judge and the jury. Darius men went through the aqueducts, entered into the city, and they killed the king. This is where leadership and mamas get the saying, you couldn't see the writing on the wall. This is the story where the phrase and the idiom comes from, your days are numbered. But more than cool phrases and idioms, we get some really great truths from this story we're running just a little bit late can I ask everybody just to stand up for a second some great truths in this story and I want you to get them but I want you to be awake and I know you've been sitting down for a while now you can sit down the blood's pumping <laughs> got to move those clots around Daniel calls us to be a people of faithfulness if you get anything out of this story, I want you to recognize that Daniel is a man of faithfulness. Daniel's been serving God and serving the pagan kings for over 60 years. In his 20s, 
He was a man of God, and in his 70s and 80s, he's a man of God. His character and his convictions haven't changed at all. He's still the same man speaking the same truth, no matter what the consequences are. Loyalty could be his middle name. And let's not forget Daniel's meaning of Daniel's name. God will judge. You see, Daniel really, truly believes that everything, everything is going to work its way out for the better of Israel, for the better of Daniel, if he'll just stay faithful to the Lord. If you like Olympics and you like stories about not giving up, then you'll like the story of John Stephen Akari. Akari was a runner from Tanzania. He was very poor. He was pulled out of the fields of Tanzania to run in the Olympics for his country. In the 1968 Olympics held in Mexico City at high altitude, he was to run the marathon race for Tanzania. Not too long after he started running, he started cramping up about the second mile because, you see, he, didn't, he, he wasn't afford, he wasn't wealthy enough to train at the high altitude of Mexico City. So right off the bat, Matt, kind of like you and I, he started cramping up around the second mile. We cramp up around the second mile for a different reason. And then about the 12th mile, the 12th mile, when they started jockeying for position. And, and he got into a pack, and they started trying to move around him, and somebody tripped him up. And he went down hard on a curb. And he pulled his shoulder out of place. He knocked his knee out of joint. He had a laceration, a large laceration on the top of his leg. And they put his shoulder back in, and they got his knee back into place. And they bandaged bandaged his leg, and this is where the, he should have, and most people would have, mounted themselves up in the ambulance and rode back to the Colosseum, back to the arena where the end of the race would happen. But not Akari. Akari demanded that he be able to finish the race. Akari kept running. He'd run a while, then he'd walk a while because of the pain of his leg. And then he'd run a while, and he'd walk a while. He finished the race an hour after the last person had crossed the line. It had gotten dark by the time he gets to the arena. But along the way, Rick, people had, had recognized what Akari was doing. And they started lining the streets and cheering him on as he'd limp, and then he'd run, and then he'd limp, and then he'd run. And then he entered into the Colosseum, and when he came into the arena, just a few, just a fragment of people were left. But they realized what was going on, and if you watch a video of this, you can hear them screaming and hollering and encouraging him to go on. Later, after, after the, the, the limelight was gone and, and the interviews started, one of the interviewers said, why didn't you just quit? 
No one would have blamed you for quitting. No one would have been upset with you. You went through some really terrible, awful things. They would have been okay if you had just got in the ambulance and, and rode back. And Akari said this. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. My country sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. You see, that's what Daniel's doing. 60 years of running the race. 60 years of doing the right thing for the right reason because he has faith in God. If you like marathon stories, then you already know this story about Cliff Young. Cliff Young is a potato farmer in Australia, or he was before he passed away. He grew up, Mary, on a 2,000-acre farm. Can you imagine 2,000 acres? And his family was really poor. And they didn't have money for a horse or for a motorcycle or an ATV or whatever you call those cool little things that farmers drive around now. What do you call those things? A utility vehicle. No, they're not. They're really just excuses so old men can drive fast through the field. And he didn't have any of that. But he was held responsible for the livestock on his family's farm. And there were many times, Matt, that he had to run through the night after livestock. There were days that he said he didn't get to sleep on the farm. And he found out that they were having a marathon, what's called an ultra-marathon race, 540 miles from Melbourne to Sydney, Australia, that's a long ways, folks. And so all kinds of professional runners show up for this race. And Chris Young shows up for the race in bib overalls, muck boots, a sun hat, and without dentures. He later told the interviewers, my dentures rattled too much when I ran, so I like to take them out when I run. And I had the muck boots because I'm comfortable in them and it might rain. And so Cliff Young starts the race. They pull the trigger and poof, all the runners take off. And Cliff starts the most awkward run called the Cliff Shuffle. If you see him running, if you look up the video, seriously, he runs like this in his muck boots and his overalls and his sun hat. No professional coach, no sponsor, and no one to tell him, hey, Cliff, most professional runners run for 18 hours and sleep six. They forgot to tell him that. So Cliff does what he's done all his life when it's something important. He just runs through the night. And each night he sleeps for about an hour. Do you know why there are no pictures of Cliff Run starting the race? Because nobody believed he would finish the race. Yet somewhere around the first night, he began to really close in on those professional runners. 
And by the last night of the race, Mary, while they had their heads on pillows, Cliff Young passes them, shuffling along. He finishes the race two days before anybody had ever finished the race before, and 10 hours, 10 hours in front of the next competitor. Because Cliff learned to run through the night, through the dark, with his very efficient, shuffling stamina. Later on, ultramarathoners would adopt, some would adopt his unconventional shuffle because it's so efficient, efficient at night, running in the dark when you're tired. Christ told us this story. No one who stands firm to the end, excuse me, no one who stands firm. The, why am I putting no in there? It's been a long week, brothers and sisters. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Rick, the one who keeps on keeping on is the one who's going to be saved. Praise God. God didn't call us to be successful. He called us to be faithful, right? And that's what Daniel's doing. He's doing the cliff shuffle, working his way through the darkness of the pagan society, shuffling along in his life, never giving up, never giving in, never being distracted by the pomp and the glitter of wealth and power Daniel is the epitome of faithfulness to a loyal God. Daniel is a finisher. Daniel knows that kings and kingdoms all come with the expiration date. And he doesn't get wound up into these earthly kingdoms. Can I tell you this morning, some of you probably feel like you're running through a long, dark night. Understand evil leadership comes with an expiration date. Maybe it's a tyrant boss at work. Maybe it's a marriage gone bad. Maybe there are people over you who all of society thinks they're really great people, but you know better. Can I tell you they come with an expiration date. Just keep on shuffling on. Just keep on running. Just keep on moving forward. Because they all come with an expiration date. You're called to be faithful. And that's what Daniel did. And don't give in. And don't return evil with evil. Okay? I know it's hard not to do that, but don't do that. And remember, a slow change doesn't mean no change. Sometimes we get frustrated because things aren't changing quickly in our circumstances. Sometimes we run a long time in that night. And I believe that if Daniel were alive today, that he'd walk up next to you and he'd put his hand on your shoulder. And he'd tell you, let me tell you about the worst 70 years of my life. 
Number two, God holds us accountable for what we do know. This morning, if you've been here through the whole series, you've got to be thinking to yourself, why is it that Nebuchadnezzar seems to get all these second chances, but Bell doesn't get anything? He gets one chance. I mean, think about it. Chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar is given four godly men to help rule his country. Chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is given the opportunity to see the wisdom of God. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar witnesses the power of of God and the presence of God with godly men. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar goes to humility school and is then turned into a believer of the Most High God. Belshazzar gets one story and that's it. And I think the answer can be found in Daniel 22. Even though you knew. Are you paying attention? Are you listening? He was held accountable because he knew. You see, God holds us accountable for what we do know. Let's be honest. We can't hold people accountable for what they don't know. We have to patiently and respectfully come alongside them and teach them a better way. Elders, leaders of the church, don't get upset when the, when the lost act like the lost. See the godly example here and replicate it. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience in teaching. Folks, when we come alongside the lost... We ought to teach them with patience because the lost are going to act like the lost. But I got to tell you, there's another side of this coin. We're held accountable for what we do know. If you turn over to James 4 and 17, he'll tell you that if you know to do good and you don't do it, it's sin. Do you hear that? If you know to do something good, and you don't do it, to you it's sin. If there's a need to be filled and you don't fill it, if there's a good deed to do and you don't do it, if there's something to restrain from and you don't restrain from it, that's sin. Church, have we got your attention? Most of our sin problems are not ignorance issues. They're obedience issues. Let me say that again, if you didn't hear me. Most of our sin problems in the church today are not ignorance issues. They're obedience issues. I'm going to say this lovingly and kind, but it needs to be said. Sometimes I am fearful that if we had two classes this morning... And one was on the subject of mercy. And the other one was showing mercy. I'm afraid a lot of us would go to the one to study the subject. And not actually practice the subject of mercy. 
Let me give you an example. Tonight, we're going to practice mercy. We're going to put 50 boxes together for disadvantaged children and their families in third world countries who need the helping hand of the church. And I'm afraid we have less people there tonight than we had this morning in class. We have more people worried about not having Sunday night services than we do people who will show up for acts of mercy. Church, most of us don't have an issue with sin because of ignorance. We have an issue with sin because we're not obedient to the word. Christ says the weightier matters are justice. That is making the wrongs right, making sure people are treated well and justly. Mercy, acts of forgiveness, helping those who are in need, faithfulness, being loyal to God and having no one or no thing before him. Love, gape, unconditional love for both God and your fellow mankind. This leads me to the last point of the sermon, and then the sermon will be yours. You'll be weighed. There'll be one day that you are weighed. There'll be one day that you'll stand before your maker, and you will be weighed. And on that day, it will not be what your knowledge is. It will be how obedient were you with the knowledge that you had. On the day the Lord comes back, you will not have a Bible trivia questionnaire before you. But you will be judged on your obedience to his word. You will be weighed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to be people who are good finishers, who will run the race for you. Help us to run the race to win. Help us to be a church that not only knows your word, but is obedient to your word. Lord, I know that there are some people here who feel like they've been running a long time in the night. Help them to be encouraged and help us to encourage them to know that kingdoms and kings and situations and circumstances all come with an expiration date and that we are called to be faithful. In your son's name, amen. I don't know where you are this morning in your walk with the Lord, but if we can help you in any way, won't you come as we stand and we sing.